Beloved, some diseases are clearly the providence of God. Uh, what insurance companies would, or at least used to, called uh, an act of God. In other words, these diseases have nothing to do with bad behavior or poor discipline. They are merely a result of living in this sin-cursed world. Others, however, are a result of bad behavior or lack of discipline. When my beloved Margie and children and I lived on the East Coast, I had a, a dear brother who was a friend of mine, a, a believer, was part of uh, the church we were at, where I was pastoring, and he was an executive at AstraZeneca, which is one of the uh, largest uh, pharmaceutical companies in uh, the world. And regardless of his expertise or not, it was interesting, he told me one time that in his estimation, if you were to line up the top 10 selling drugs in the world, eight of them would go away if people were to repent. Again, take that as you wish, that's one man's opinion. Whatever the case may be, when you have a disease, a doctor will prescribe the cure. We need medicine. If your disease, if our disease is due to unhealthy behavior and poor practice, then a good doctor won't just prescribe the cure. He or she will counsel to change lifestyle and habits to prevent further occurrence. Beloved, please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You see, the situation is this young Thessalonian church, this church that the Apostle Paul said, though young, was a model church, was an example church. They are ailing. They are infected. And so Paul identifies the disease. He prescribes the medicine, and he advises the prevention. Our passage here this morning are verses 3 through 5. But listen as I read, beginning in verse 1, all the way to verse 12 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to give the broader context. This is the Word of God, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And now you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness." Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we have in verses 3 through 5, we have deception, 
We have correction and we have instruction. What Paul does here is Paul takes and identifies the disease of deception. He prescribes the medicine of correction and he advises the prevention of instruction. You see, we are moving from chapter 1, where there's a great focus on encouragement, to chapter 2, where the focus is on correction and instruction. And he does this for a reason. Um, in, we have a second session this last week of the Master's Seminary uh, Mentor Program. And in this, we are talking about what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be an elder, what is the best way to handle even and pre sermon preparation. Uh, one avenue and one point that people make in sermon preparation is you should at the beginning of a sermon after an introduction give a proposition tell the church where you're taking them and then give them a reason why I sow that statement what's beautiful about this one right here is we have a built-in so that statement a built-in purpose statement from God through the apostle Paul as to why he writes this detailed information that we have here. Look at verses 16 and 17, beloved. This is the reason behind the sermon here this morning and the sermon next week as well. Paul says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, <coughs> excuse me, and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Beloved, even here in the midst of chapter 2, in the midst of the correction and instruction, it is for encouragement and it is for hope. That is the built-in purpose statement. Comfort, comfort, oh my people, says God, Isaiah 40, verse 1. Now, what's amazing is we are going to be beginning a deep dive into eschatology. And I'm going to use the word eschatology. That means the study of last things, the study of end times. I'm going to use that repeatedly through the message because that is the topic here. These are First and Second Thessalonians, the eschatological epistles. And Paul makes a deep dive here. Um, the sermon this morning will have a, something of an element even of a theology course because of the content of even what God gives us here in verses 3 through 5. I'll try to explain as much as possible, but I'm sure there will be points where I will, there'll be some kind of presumption of understanding. You may hear some phraseology or something that you're wondering about. I'll do my best to try to make it all clear, but even from a time standpoint, we can't necessarily connect all the dots. So please come up at any point afterwards. I would love to have fellowship in greater depth and detail here, but keeping the main things plain and the plain things main, we clearly understand what Paul is doing here. At verse 3, at the very beginning, he again, he identifies the disease of deception. You see, the Thessalonians have been, this beautiful church that the apostle loved has been infected with the potentially fatal doctrinal heresy that says Christ has already returned. That's why, look at the beginning of verse 3, he says, let no one in any way deceive you. But even as we look there, we see what Paul had said at the end of verse 2. Don't be, well actually in all verse 2, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, by a supposed supernatural revelation or some message that was preached or taught or even a forged letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul does not want them to be infected with the disease, thinking that the day of the Lord has arrived. So let no one in any way deceive you. 
Don't be tempted. Don't be seduced. Don't be deluded by anyone. And even the grammar that Paul uses here, what he's really saying is stop letting people deceive you in this way. Sometimes they'll get a command in the Old Testament, well, they will in essence say, don't start doing this. What he's saying here is stop doing, stop letting, beloved brothers and sisters, he says to the Thessalonians, stop letting people deceive you. Now, Paul will use the same language later when he will write to the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae. Ephesians 5, 6, Paul writes, let no one deceive you with empty words. Colossians 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. You see, for the Thessalonians, it's bad enough that they had been suddenly shaken. And it was bad enough that they were continually disturbed in their heart because they'd been sucked in by this false doctrine. It's even worse, though, that they would be deceived with doctrinal error. You see, beloved, Behind every disturbance on the sea of our emotions is a germ of deceit. Behind every emotional disturbance is a lie that has taken root. That's why this is so important. And in fact, with this in mind, we can ask a question. Is eschatology important? Is an understanding of the end times important? Now, to be sure, the subject is complex, and there are good men and women of Christ with different perspectives, but true Christians agree on the main things. True Christians have the blessed hope that Jesus is coming again, that he wins in the end. But is the study of eschatology important? Does Paul here say, don't worry about eschatology? It really doesn't matter. It'll, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. No, but he doesn't do that. What Paul does here is he provides specific teaching and detailed information. And it's even information that one could call chart-worthy. But don't go off and start making charts. And that's a historical reference I don't have time here to completely elaborate in. If you want to know what I'm talking about, as one dear sister with her husband asked me afterwards, I'd be happy to share. Or, more to the point, how about Jesus? It's interesting Jesus gave his longest discourse. It was the Olivet Discourse. Well, it was the longest discourse that was in response to a question recorded in Scripture. He gave his Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, chapter 13 of Mark, uh, a portion of it recorded in Luke chapter 21. And again, it was the longest answer discourse he gave in response to a question and the questions were about the end times about what is coming in the future so all this to say I think it is right for us to understand that eschatology is important it's also important to understand there's a difference between error and between heresy so I have brothers, covenantal brothers and sisters, and I would say, well, you're in error in your eschatology. And they would lovingly respond back to me and say, well, I think you're in error in that as well. There's a huge difference between error and heresy. And I would gladly join arms with the covenantal brother to go against the heresies at either end of the spectrum, the heresy of hyper-dispensationalism or the heresy of hyper-preterism, again, these are big words, I I don't have time to explain all of these, other than to say the heresy of hyper-preterism is the exact same heresy that that Paul is warning against here that was infecting the Thessalonians, namely that Jesus has already returned. So there is a huge difference. So Paul, at the very beginning, identifies the disease of deception. 
And as the good doctor that he is, he moves on to prescribe the medicine of correction. You see, it's interesting in the first letter, Paul addressed their concern. They had an eschatological error. They had an error of understanding about the end times. Namely, they realized, and this is what Paul corrected in the first letter, that Jesus had not returned yet. But some of their beloved brothers and sisters had died, uh, perhaps having been killed in their stand for the faith, perhaps even in the month's time period from when Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy left them. And Paul wrote his first letter, perhaps of natural causes. And so the Thessalonians at that point were concerned that did they miss out? Did those who they love who have passed away, have they missed out in some way because Christ hasn't returned yet? And of course, especially in chapter 4, Paul made it very clear to them, do not be worried. Jesus, the Lord, will come and there will be a great rapture and there will be a great reunion, a gathering together of the children of God. But now, only some few months later, now they're on the other side. Now they have been infected and influenced by false teachers. Again, through perhaps some stated supernatural revelation, preaching, or forged letter, thinking that Christ has already returned, and they think maybe our afflictions and persecutions are because we are in the day of the Lord, even though Paul had made it very clear in the first letter, chapter 4, that the intent, God's intent of the day of the Lord is not for his children. It's not for the sons and daughters of the day, the sons and daughters of light and life. It is for the children of darkness. It is the children intended for the children of the night. So what Paul does here is he assures them, you are not in the day of the Lord. And the way he does that is he says the day of the Lord will be accompanied by two historic events or happenings, the rebellion, the rebellion, and the revelation. The rebellion, the day of the Lord, will be accompanied by the rebellion, a worldwide rebellion against the Lord, a worldwide rebellion against Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. He continues on. He says, for it will not come. Uh, Those words added there talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The apostasy, the rebellion, the falling away. The revolt, the deliberate abandonment. Uh, The same word translated here as apostasy, which really comes even from the Greek letters from the Greek language, was also used, a different form of it was used, for example, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 to talk about a certificate of divorce. In other words, this rebellion is a deliberate, willful, volitional, and even vehement abandonment of what was there, a deliberate abandonment. Uh, The same word is also the root word behind what Paul will write to Timothy in his first letter, 1 Timothy 4.1. He says, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away. Some will apostasontai, will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So, When you think fall away, don't think of it's like some kind of accidental falling out of a tree. It is a deliberate, willful rejection of the truth that one once professed to hold. And the reality is that throughout history, there has always been and always will be until Christ comes again, lowercase a apostasy. There will always be men men and women who profess Christ and then deliberately, vocally, sometimes vehemently deny the faith. Uh, There are 
lists and lists of names that could come from history. I'll give some recent examples. You might even perhaps are familiar with these names. Joshua Harris was a man that was a very well-known pastor on the East Coast. He wrote widely selling books, and he is now an apostate. He has deliberately, vociferously, vehemently denied the faith. Uh, Abraham Piper is another one that at one point professed faith and now has a very active some 700,000 followers on social media where he denies and mocks the faith. So those are just two recent examples. There have always been like, you will always have the poor with you, is what we read in Scripture. So also, you will have lowercase apostasy and lowercase apostates with you. But Joshua Harris, Abraham Piper, etc., etc., are not the capital A apostate. Paul is talking about the uppercase apostasy, the worldwide rebellion that the day of the Lord deals with. And by the rebellion, the day of the Lord will be accompanied by the rebellion, and secondly, the day of the Lord will be accompanied by the revelation. And the revelation that I'm speaking of here is not the blessed, glorious revelation of Jesus Christ that we already saw back in verse 1 and even back in chapter 1 as well. It's the revelation of the Antichrist. So the rebellion and the revelation are separate, but they are very closely related. Again, this is the revelation of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, what he who John MacArthur calls, quote, the ultimate champion of wickedness and blasphemy. Look at verse 3, continuing, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Uh, literally, the original language says revealed emphatically at the beginning. Revealed is the man of lawlessness. And it's the same language as Paul used for the revelation of Jesus. So this is setting the stage between the Antichrist, the, this man of lawlessness, is not a false Christ. He is the Antichrist. And even the language here gives the parallel contrast. And he is the man of lawlessness, anomia, literally the man of no law. He will be called in verse 8 that lawless one. Um, we could call him, theologians, we could call him the ultimate antinomian, if you will. Beloved, I'm going to open up the book of Daniel. Uh, you can listen as I read, or if you want to look there yourself, you can put your thumb there or put a bookmark because we'll go there more than once in our time here this morning. Daniel describes this man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the antichrist, especially in Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, and 11. And in Daniel 7, verse 25, we read these words. And this is in the context of him being described by Paul as the lawless one. Daniel 7, 25, he will speak out this man against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Alteration in times and in law. He is the lawless one. Chapter 8, verse 25. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. Watch this. He will even oppose the prince of peace. He is the antichrist. He is the anti-prince of peace. Prince of princes, excuse me. And then finally, chapter 11, verse 36. Then the king 
This is describing the same man, describing the horn from earlier in Daniel. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He is the man of lawlessness, Uh, Paul continues, he is also the son of destruction. Now, Paul is writing to this Thessalonian church, and they are primarily made up of Gentiles. Paul, of course, is a Jew, and perhaps even as this church, the Gentile church, is growing and understanding God's good words, even from the Old Testament, they might begin to have something of an understanding of some of the Hebrewisms that Paul brings out. But regardless of their understanding of the Hebrew background, in a Hebrew thinking like Paul, when you describe someone as a son of something, you're describing what characterizes them and what they're destined for. Uh, most of the commentators that I read say a good way to capture the understanding here is this man of lawlessness, this son of perdition, is the man who is doomed for destruction. That is what he is characterized by, and that is his destiny. Now, to be sure, he will be a destroyer himself. We could say he'll be a destroyer with a little d destroyer. But as we will even see when we get to verse 6 and forward, he will be destroyed. This little d destroyer will be destroyed instantaneously by the big d destroyer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son of destruction. And it's interesting This uh, description, this title, the son of destruction, is used of one other person in the New Testament, namely Judas Iscariot, the traitor. In John 17, 12, he is the son of destruction, Judas is, or the son of perdition. That's the same Greek phrase. Now, how will this lawless one, how will this son of destruction, the Antichrist, be revealed? He'll be revealed, according to the Apostle Paul, by what he does. He will oppose God and he will exalt self. He says, he who opposes, who's hostile, who is enemy, who is the adversary against, anti kami literally he is anti. Again, he's not a false Christ. The, we had... We, we have false Christs all the time. We also even have people in the spirit of the Antichrist all the time. But he is not a false Christ. He is the Antichrist. Uh, this word opposes, the Greek word is used to translate the Hebrew Old Testament of Exodus 23:22, where God says to the nation of Israel, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. I will oppose those who oppose you. Which, if you're here, or if you know chapter 1, that's precisely what God said through Paul by way of encouragement in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Uh, John, the uh, apostle, in 1 John 2.18, in his first letter, describes this man. He says, 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. So this is a man. This is not a principle. This is not some kind of abstract power. And in fact, there, there's a distinction. So at Santan Bible Church, what is taught from the teaching platforms is we are pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. 
I am so blessed because we have covenantal brothers and sisters that are part of our fellowship. Those are two distinctions. Those are on two sides of the eschatological spectrum. But there is fellowship. The error that we would lovingly say towards one another in fellowship doesn't separate our fellowship. So we understand that. And as far as I could tell, even reading through some of the commentaries from my covenantal brothers, most of whom, well, actually none of them I know personally, as far as I could tell from reading through the commentaries of the sound ones, and that's the only ones I read, the sound covenantalists or the sound pre-tribulational premillennialists. Don't want to read the unsound one. Every single one of them understand and say that this is not referring to an abstract principle or power. It's referring to a future man. Leon Morris said this. It's, these are good words of warning and a good words of understanding. He says, quote, Throughout history, there have been many who have done Satan's evil work. And this is a warning against over-hasty identification of the man of this chapter with any historical personage. I'll pause there for a second. It's been people more in the camp of pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, I think, in history that have committed the error of trying to identify that than people who are on the covenantal side. But be that as it may, Leon Morris says here, he continues, Paul's concern is not with the evil ones who appear from time to time, but with the most infamous of all, one who will appear in the last days. He never uses, Paul never uses the word antichrist, but plainly he has in mind the man John calls by this name. You see, beloved, you see, dear friend, the many who had already arisen at the time of John's writing and the many who have come since merely prefigure, all the lowercase antichrist merely prefigure the ultimate singular antichrist of whom Daniel writes of, of who John wrote of. And we know from Daniel's writing, and some of the verses I already read from Daniel point towards this, that he will be a man of incredible intellectual and rhetorical skills. He'll combine political, military, and economic abilities. Again, from the chapters in Daniel and Revelations cha Revelation, Revelation chapters 13 and 18. Uh, we know that he will forbid all world religions. No more so world religions will not be allowed. No more Christianity, no more Judaism, no more Islam, no more Hinduism. And what I mean by no more Christianity, no more Christianity that will be allowed by the world government. There will, in that time of trouble and tribulation, there will be an incredible harvest of souls, but he will banish all religion. But Understand this, this man whom Daniel describes, whom Jesus, I'll mention in a moment, will talk about, and who Paul and John talk about, was no atheist. He was no agnostic. He will ban all worship except for one. Look at verse 4, the rest. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. That's the source of my quote, no more Christianity, Judaism, Islam, etc. Over every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. What he will do is he will demand worship for himself that he is forbidden to everybody else and anything else. And this is what Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. Let me draw your attention back to Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Daniel 11:31. 31. 
forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Also chapter 12, verse 11. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, this abomination of desolation, according to Daniel, takes place at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. Now, let me pause there. This gets back to keeping the plain things main and the main things plain. If you were here when I preached through 1 Thessalonians 4, you may remember that I said that every Christian believes in the rapture, believes the words that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. There will be some disagreements and distinctions in terms of what that looks like, but every Christian believes what God says about the gathering and the reunion of the people of God in 1 Thessalonians 4. So also I would say every Christian believes that the abomination of desolation takes place at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week because that's exactly what God says in Daniel 9, verse 27. Daniel 9, actually I think I'll read verse 26. Daniel 9, 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood even to the end. There will be war, desolations are determined. Verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. This is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. He'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's a false peace treaty with Israel. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wings of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So again, that is the midpoint. The abomination of desolation is the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. Now, when we go into chapter 11, and I'm not going to read through this. We don't have time here this morning. But in Daniel 11, verses 21 through 35, we have more prophecy about this coming man. But what's interesting is there is a historical figure named Antiochus Epiphanes that was a partial fulfillment historically of Daniel 11, 21 through 35. In the same way, Cyrus, the Persian, was a fulfilled prophecy from Isaiah, so also Antiochus Epiphanes around 167 BC was a partial fulfillment of this prophecy of this little horn of this king that we read of in Daniel 11, 21 through 35. He came in, Antiochus Epiphanes, and attacked Jerusalem's temple. He profaned the sacrificial system. He massacred 80,000 men, took 40,000 prisoners, and sold another 40,000 as slaves. He halted all worship in the nation of Israel, at least in Jerusalem. They slaughtered men, women, and children on the Sabbath. The soldiers desecrated Israel's temple. They banned circumcision, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. Then he erected a statue of Zeus in the temple and declared himself as a human embodiment of Zeus and demanded he be worshipped as God. So he was a fulfillment. But even Daniel said that he was a preview of a future coming one that would be the greater fulfillment. In Daniel 11, verse 36 and forward, Daniel begins to kind of segue from 
the initial fulfillment with Antiochus Epiphanes to the greater fulfillment. And it's really summed up, look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Does that make you have 1 Thessalonians 4 come to mind? Verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the distinction between the pardoned and the judged in 1 Thessalonians 4, the distinction between the saved and the unsaved in 2 Thessalonians 1, and even the judgment we will see that's coming in the later verses of chapter 2. But then look at verse 3, Daniel 12. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the whole point is, Daniel himself said that there was an initial fulfillment and a future greater fulfillment, which is exactly what Lord Jesus picked up in his Olivet Discourse. In his Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, verse 14, Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Matthew records that he said, When you see it standing in the holy place, in the temple. So Jesus, who came some now some 197-ish years after Antiochus Epiphanes, says the final fulfillment of the abomination of desolation is still coming. And by the way, this makes some kind of allegorical understanding of when we look at the temple of God reference in Paul writing 2 Thessalonians 2 to understand the temple he's referring to there as the church that makes that impossible. The temple is used in the New Testament of both the physical temple that was in Jerusalem and we being part of the temple of God. But it makes it very clear when we see what Daniel writes, what Jesus taught, and what Paul is saying here. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Paul, Jesus, was speaking to Jewish people with the temple in view. So that's clearly what he is talking about. Also, understand this. The description of the abomination of desolation by Daniel, Jesus, is talking about the pollution, the desecration of the temple, not the destruction of the temple. So in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, you, you cannot think of that or look at that as a fulfillment of what we have here. So, beloved, there's always lowercase apostasy, a lowercase a apostasy. There is coming the uppercase a apostasy. There is the lowercase a antichrist. Like the poor, you always have them with you. Uh, the poor, that's a reference from the Bible, if you're not familiar with it. But there will be a coming uppercase a antichrist, of whom Daniel, Jesus, Paul, and John speak. And we even saw the spirit of the Antichrist tragically, horrifically alive on, in the October 7th Hamas massacre of Jewish people in Israel. But there is a future one coming. Now, let's bring this down to ground level. Why does Paul put this incredible, detailed eschatological discourse here? It's not merely to tantalize our interests. It's not so that we'll start trying to fill out charts, although there are, I think I said before, chart-worthy details here. Beloved, 
Chapter 2 is in between chapter 1 and chapter 3. Chapter 1 was encouragement and comfort. Chapter 3 will be exhortation and even a strong rebuke. Chapter 2 is correction and instruction. The common elements, as Paul goes from what he wrote in chapter 1 to chapter 2, the common elements from chapter 1 and 2 are the coming of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and the judgment of those who are opposed to him. Uh, John Stott, the pastor and the commentator, said this. He said, whether we still believe in the coming of the Antichrist will depend largely on whether we still believe in the coming of Christ. End quote. Beloved, the point here is Paul gives this detailed eschatology to correct and to comfort, to encourage. He wants them to know, he wants us to know, you're not going to go through the day of the Lord. You see, the Thessalonians were right in one way, even in their error. If they found themselves to be in the day of the Lord, they would have much to fear. Not, and not just the outpouring of the blazing righteous fury of God on that day, but Paul had already made it abundantly clear the intent, the purpose for the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4, and even the little snippet in verse 2 of chapter 2, is it's not for believers, it's for unbelievers. So if one finds himself or herself in the day of the Lord, the temporal outpouring of God's blazing righteous fury will pale in comparison to the eternal outpouring of God's righteous judgment even in hell. So Paul says it's not for you. Be encouraged. This is why Jesus Lord will rescue us. He will gather us together prior to the day of the Lord, prior to the outpouring of his righteous judgment. In a word, biblical Excuse me, biblical eschatology is a purifying hope. It's a purifying hope. So, as we go on to verse 5, as we wrap up, Paul has identified the disease of deception. He has prescribed the medicine of correction. Finally, Paul advises the prevention of instruction. What he does in verse 5 is he points them. God points you and me back to the word of God. For the Thessalonians, the word of the Lord that had been preached to them and the word of the Lord that had been taught them. Look at verse 5. Paul says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And even the grammar, I was continually teaching you these things. It's interesting. So, if you were here when we went through 1 Thessalonians, you may remember it's interesting because Paul references Satan in both the first letter and the second letter. And he's writing to this group of Gentile believers. So apparently, in those several weeks of Paul and Silvanus and Timothy ministering to the people, at least for Paul, he taught somewhat regularly on the subject of Satan, so he didn't need any explanation or clarification but to the point here apparently as part of Paul's evangelism discipleship initial program let's do a deep dive into eschatology which is quite interesting it's very clear that Paul had taught them from the book of Daniel when he dove into eschatology so let's uh, for a moment pause and let's tie together this eschatological correction and instruction as I said before or I don't think, I, did, I said something that would intimate this. Christians take the Bible at face value. Christians should believe in the literal seven-day creation that God puts forth in Genesis. We believe in a literal global flood. 
as recorded by Genesis 6 through 9. We believe that the plagues that God poured out on the nation of Egypt in Exodus were literal plagues, that the river Nile was literally turned into blood. We believe that Jonah was literally swallowed by a great fish. We believe, according to the prophecy of God through Isaiah 7:14, that Jesus Christ, the promised one, was born to a virgin. We believe these things because we take the Bible at face value. And one more element that comes in that helps illuminate this for us is we believe in the clarity of Scripture. For example, back in Daniel, uh, the point being here that God writes his will for us with words that, so that we would read them, so that we would understand them, whether educated or uneducated. Uh, Daniel 7, verse 16 Daniel says, I approached one of those who were standing by, that would be one of the angels, and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. Or Daniel 9, verses 20 to 22. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision, previously came to me in my weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight and with understanding. Look at Daniel 10, verses 10 through 14. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man of high esteem, Understand the words that I'm about to tell you. Down in verse 12, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, or verse 14, now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. And then even back, as we read before, chapter 12, verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the righteous. Uh, beloved, the point here is we believe we can understand what God says. And the distinction among brothers and sisters in Christ with different end times understanding really is boiled down to two areas, hermeneutics and covenants. And this is where we kind of get into that the theology course I talked about before. At a simple level, hermeneutics are the rules, the methods, the principles by which we understand and interpret Scripture. Um, it comes from a Greek word that was used when Jesus in Luke 24 was explaining all the scriptures to the two disciples that he was explaining. It was hermeneuo to them. So hermeneutics is how we approach scripture. And our beloved covenantal brothers and sisters would say that when it comes to prophecy, you would, and you're always run a risk when you speak on behalf of another brother or sister. So I would let them speak for themselves. But as best as I understand, they would say that they have it, you need to under, have a different hermeneutic when it comes to interpreting prophecy than the normal, latru, normal, literal, historical hermeneutic you would use to all other portions of scripture. So that is what is meant, whereas where it is taught at this church, the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial perspective, we believe in a consistent, normal, literal hermeneutic. And it is from that we come to where we land here. And this is normal usage of language that leaves room for poetic language, figurative language, beautiful language. And to kind of wrap this up, what I'm going to do here is quote from four covenantalists whom I esteem highly, two names you might recognize, some of the others as well. First, 
from a man named Floyd Hamilton, who's an amillennialist, in his book, The Basis of Millennial Faith, he wrote this, quote, we must admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. Or Oswald T. Aulis, also an amillennialist in his book, Prophecy in the Church, wrote this, quote, The Old Testament prophecies, if literally interpreted, cannot be regarded as having been yet fulfilled or as being capable of being fulfilled in this present age, end quote. And then two more men, and these are the ones you might be more familiar with. Luther said, quote, The literal sense of Scripture alone is the whole essence of faith in a Christian theology. Separate quote, Each passage has one clear, definite, and true sense of its own. All others are but doubtful and uncertain opinions. And then finally, John Calvin let us know then that the true meaning of Scripture is the natural and obvious meaning, and let us embrace and abide by it resolutely. Second quote and final, it's the first business of an interpreter to let his author say what he does say instead of attributing to him what we think he ought to say. So that is just a very 10,000-foot flyby of hermeneutics. The second area of distinction is to do with covenants. And what... I would counsel and encourage any Christian is if God calls something a covenant, then we should call it a covenant. And if God doesn't, then we shouldn't. So what is taught here, and this is what David is, and this wasn't through any kind of uh, collusion or planning or anything that David is beginning, beginning his uh, Bible Hour Sunday School class on biblical covenants and hermeneutics. It just so happened providentially. But we believe and teach the five unconditional biblical covenants. The five covenants that God specifically calls eternal covenants. The five covenants where God says, I will do this thing. Namely, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the priestly covenant, the Davidic, and the new covenant. And then the sixth Biblical covenant is what could be called the unconditional covenant, the Mosaic covenant. In the Mosaic covenant, in Exodus 19 and 20, you don't get a flat-out God saying, I will. Rather, what we see there is God tells the nation of Israel, if you will do these things, then this is what I will do. That's the only covenant that has that kind of lead into it. That's why it's the Mosaic Covenant. As we understand from the book of Hebrews, it is the Old Covenant, which is replaced by the New Covenant. Now, as I said before, I can't connect all the dots, but when you start fleshing out that distinction with covenants, that's where you get into a covenantal perspective, which I would say is an erroneous one, but absolutely in no way, shape, or form close to being a heretical view of end times and the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view. Historically, some people have called it dispensational, but because of the intense baggage and error and even heresy that has been spawned in history, I avoid that myself. But back to the correction and the instruction. Beloved, Paul clearly taught, what, what Paul is saying, remember what was taught you. Paul clearly taught them out of the book of Daniel. And if they had remembered what he had taught them, if they had gone back to the word of God rather than a spirit or a oral teaching or a forged letter, they would have remembered and they would have rested in the truth that they had already received. And they would not have been suddenly shaken. They would not have been continually disturbed from the inside out. And even more importantly, they wouldn't have been deceived with the doctrinal heresy that was sucking them in. And that's 
even in verse 15 of chapter 2, Paul will in just a little bit say, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you are taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And it's amazing because this is a church that is maybe a year old, and you know the history of talk here, and he says, hold to the traditions. So these aren't ancient hundred-year traditions. These are months-old traditions. But a tradition that rests on the rock of the word of God is something that must be held on to. And that is the heart behind this. Finally, Beloved brother and sister, even as we segue from our message to approaching the communion table, understand this, and I think we should. We get great information, great detailed information here about the Antichrist, but we do not look for the Antichrist. We look for Christ. Our hope is in Christ. We look for him. That's why even at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, Remember what he said. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. The end of the chapter, again, verses 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And you see, Good theology, all good theology produces doxology, produces glory and praise to God. And I'll finish before we approach the communion table by reading the same passage I did in our public reading of Scripture at the beginning of the service, Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14. And hopefully even this little meager sermon you've heard today will make these verses, Daniel 7, 9 through 14, come just a tiny bit more alive in our hearts. Daniel wrote 7, Nine, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom so that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Beloved, thus saith the Lord. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. Thank you for your Bible. Lord, we 
Approach it humbly. We approach you, Lord, in prayer with confidence. Not confidence in self, but confidence in you, Lord Jesus. We do approach your word with a measure of confidence because we thank you and know we have the indwelling spirit who will teach us and lead us. And at the same time, we approach it in abject humility, understanding the majesty and the mystery and the wonder and the complexity and the simplicity. Lord, we praise you and thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you that we can now approach a communion table and together with our hearts joined seeking to worship you in spirit and in truth, do this great ordinance that you prescribed and demanded of us. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.